everybody. I'm Pauline. A grateful member of the Worldwide Fellowship of Al-Anon and Alateen, otherwise known as Laura. <laughs> Somebody talked to me in the bathroom and they said, are you the Laura he was talking about? And I said, I think I am, but I'm really Pauline. So uh, Joe and I rarely get to see each other, so uh, I can understand where he'd forget my name. He probably knows me as Mrs. Mike, which is what most people call me because my husband's name is Mike. Um, I am grateful, so grateful to be here. Actually, um, I'm very touched to be here because uh, about this same time in 1978, Michael and I had our first date here. <laughs> Little did I know that that date even though he proposed to me on our first date. <laughs> uh, little did I know that that, uh, that that beginning would take me into the family disease of alcoholism and then give me an opportunity because of a higher power that works in my life to stand here today with a husband who's in recovery, a happy marriage, and at peace. What a gift. What a gift that uh, my higher power has given me and the committee. Thank you to Tom and the committee for uh, making this possible. The room is lovely. The, the snacks in the room, I don't share very well, so I claim the milk duds as my own. Uh, but uh, you've all been more than hospitable. Um, I work for a company that does a lot of testing. And one of the things that I got tested for is I'm very intuitive. I pretty much know, you know, I just, my gut reaction is, is usually right on the mark. And I was telling Mike last night that just from the vibe, the feeling, the people that I've met, this is a really good conference. It's just got a really wonderful, serene feel. So I feel so blessed to be here. You know, in uh, 1978, when we had that first date, it wasn't just Michael and I on that first date. There was a 12-pack of Paps Blue Ribbon beer that, uh, that came along. And as only a true Al-Anon would, would do, I, I counted. He drank 11-ish. I drank one-ish. And uh, a little while later, we got married. But when, uh, not that same night. Uh, I didn't know when I met him that he was alcoholic. I didn't grow up with alcoholism in my family that I am aware of. I saw my dad drunk exactly once. I saw my younger and older brother drunk maybe twice. My sisters never got drunk. So I didn't know what the family disease of alcoholism looked like when it reared its ugly head in, in my life. Um, I knew there were things that I thought about my husband that needed to be fixing, and I decided that I was the woman who could do that for him. He just needed to listen to me because I'd manage him down a certain path or maneuver him this way or direct him down another path, and he just needed to do what I said because, after all, I knew what was best. So um, we met in 1978 on the night my dad had a heart attack. 
My mom wanted the home to herself, and so all the children disappeared, and I called a girlfriend of mine, and she took me to a, a bar to have a cocktail. And I walked into the bar, and standing behind the bar was a then blonde uh, gentleman with his sleeves rolled up, and I walked up to the bar, and my girlfriend did, and he looked, at, he looked up at me. <laughs> I am taller than him which means I really am his higher power. <laughs> and, uh, and he looked up at me and he said, don't I know you from somewhere? <laughs> now, there was one side of me that went, that is the oldest line in the books. There was another side of me once I realized and he shared that he lived in the bottom floor of a duplex, and my older sister lived in the top floor, and he remembered me from when I was 16. I was in love. <laughs> in love. So uh, a few months later, he asked me out on our first date, and we ended up here at Clifty Falls, and then uh, the beer and me and him on a blanket uh, down on the Ohio River, and uh, Went home that night to my parents, and I grew up in Covington, Kentucky, and my parents had a shotgun house, you know, three rooms directly behind each other. And I noticed that my parents, you know, had certain rules. These lights had to be turned out, this door locked, etc. And things were different when I got home that night. And I walked in, and I saw a glow coming from the kitchen. And I walked into the kitchen, and my mom and dad had a votive light lit in the kitchen, and they were praying over the votive light. And I thought something terrible had happened, that they were sitting there praying. And I said, Mom, Dad, what, what's the matter? And my mom just looked at me and said, Did you know he was divorced when you went out with him on this date? And I said, told my first lie, courtesy of the family disease of alcoholism. I looked right at him and I said, Well, it's not like he proposed to me or anything. <laughs> And so a couple years later, in 1980, we got married. My mother wasn't thrilled that I was uh, marrying him, wrong religion, divorced, and uh, it took a while for her to get beyond that barrier. Actually, when we announced our engagement, she wouldn't bless the marriage. She told me I needed to go out, Michael and I, to my maternal grandmother and uh, get her to bless the wedding. So Michael and I wandered out to Grandma's, and we sat down, and we talked it through, and Grandma looked at Michael, and she said, Michael, do you love her? And Michael, answered, he gave the correct answer. He said, yes, I do. And then she looked at me, and she said, well, Pauline, do you love him? And I said, yes, yes, Grandma, I do. And then Grandma looked at Mike, and she said, break out the bourbon. There's going to be a wedding. <laughs> and I said, oh, Grandma, before you, we break out that bottle, Will you please call 4312954 and tell the woman at the end of the phone, my mother, that there was going to be a wedding. So we got married, and um, I noticed some things in our dating and early marriage about Michael that just didn't seem right to me because it wasn't any of my experiences growing up. He was gone a lot. Michael's a bar drinker. So he was gone three, four, five, six nights a week to bars, drinking. Not at home, where this person felt that he needed to be. And so um, 
I made it my personal mission in life to change Michael to my idea of what he needed to be. You know, um, I think in the big book they talk about the obsession of alcohol. My obsession was Michael. Ooh. You know, I like, I still to this day like to tie on a good obsession. Ooh la la. Gets the juices going, gives me something to focus on other than myself. I like to tie on a good obsession. And back in 1980, I tied him on. And for the next 14 years, my obsession was all things Michael. How he ate, how he smoked, what he drank, what he wore, how he acted when he was at parties, how he acted at home, how he dressed, how he didn't pray, how he read books, how he cut the grass, how he didn't cut the grass, how he didn't take care of his car. You name it, I had an obsession about him about it. And I knew that I had the capabilities to make it all right. I just needed to find the right way to do it. So um, for the next 14 years, since he was my personal mission, I did a variety of things to try to get him to see the light, as defined by Pauline. And so that meant um, things like, I'll just tell you what a typical night was like in our home. Typical night. Michael would call me up and he would say he was going to go to a business meeting. I think that's AA code word for go out and get drunk because that's what happened. So he would call home and say he was going to a business meeting. I'd start to get that pre-obsession resentment. You know, just that little thing to gnaw on to get me started. And so then I'd wait about an hour and a half, and when he wouldn't come home, I'd call the bar. And I always liked those conversations because the bartender would answer, and I'd say, and I knew right where he was all the time. He had the numbers memorized. I'd say I'd like to speak to Michael, and I'd hear the bartender muffle the mouthpiece and say, hey, Mike, it's your wife. Do you want to talk to her? And I'd hear him say no. The bartender would come back and say, uh, no, he's not here. Click. Ha ah, I'd have to kick it up a notch. That's what I needed to do. Just what I needed to do. So I might drive around the bar. I might keep calling the bar. It just varied depending upon which technique I wanted to apply. Now, I would not have told you for that period from 6.30 or 7 until he arrived home at 2.30 or 3 in the morning that my life was unmanageable. I would have told you that in my role as the wife, I was doing what I should do to get him to come home. That's what I needed to do. He needed to be home and not out there drinking. And so um, I didn't think I was doing anything wrong. See, I didn't need to see him drink to make my life unmanageable. I just needed to even think that he was. And boom, I was off to the races. Oh, and I love that good obsession. But on a typical night, um, I'd watch the cars go down the street. Well, let me back up. At 11 o'clock, I go to bed. 
I'd lay in bed, and as the cars would go down the street, I'd pop up out of bed and go over and pop the blinds open to see if it was him. And when it wasn't him, I'd either lay back down, pace around the house, call the bar, whatever level I needed to kick it up to, and then I'd lay back down in bed, waiting for the next car to go down the street. And long about 2.30 or 3 o'clock in the morning, I'd pop those blinds open and I'd see his car. Ladies and gentlemen, an Oscar-winning performance is about to begin at my home. <laughs> I'd lay down in bed and put on my Virgin of Mary look. I'd wait for him to lie down beside me. And then the Wicked Witch of the West would rise up. And I would start the argument. And for those of you who are in Al-Anon, you might recognize the questions. How many drinks did you have? He would say two, maybe, maybe three. And you know what I'd say? Liar. I'd say, did you talk to women while you were at the bar? He'd say, oh, no, 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 no. And I'd say, liar. And it would escalate from there till I'd raise myself up to all six, one and a quarter, put my finger in his face, and yell, you know I do not have to put up with this crap from you. And I'd grab my pillow and I'd march to the door and I'd turn around and announce and say, I'm sleeping downstairs. And I'd march to the bottom of the steps and I'd turn around and look up because I knew that my rat would come to the top of those steps and he'd look down those steps and he'd say, Pauline, love of my life, desire of my existence. The evil alcohol will never cross my lips again. Please come back up to bed and sleep beside me. That never happened in 14 years. So I'd wait and then I'd stomp up the steps to make as much noise as I could. By now, he's asleep in bed doing what a good beer-drinking alcoholic does. He is snoring and farting at the same time. I would get right over his face. Ding, ding, ding. Round two is about to begin. Because I'd get in his face. What do you mean, sleeping? Because of your behavior, wah, 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 wah. Then there'd be more drama. I'd march off. Eventually, I'd cry and scream. He'd say, okay, okay, I won't drink again. And I would get up and go to work and put on the face that everything was fine in my home, that I was a supportive, loving partner in my relationship with my husband. What a joke. What a joke. Now, um, Michael wasn't the only one to feel my love. When I tie on an obsession, I like to let everybody feel that kind of love. So um, I'm the person, if you're in a, in a food store, in a grocery store, and you are in the 12 items or less lane, make sure you have 12 or less if I'm behind you. Otherwise, I will count them out, and I will show you the sign that shows you the difference between what you should have and what's in your cart. Don't leave litter on the sidewalk when I'm around. If I see you litter, I will pick it up and bring it to you. 
and I could point out who checked in line last night in front of me for ice cream. I'm just that type of person. Today I know I don't have to take action on it, but it's still right there in front of me because I still have this up here which still thinks in really goofy, goofy ways. Goofy ways. One of the things that um, I did in high school and college and professionally was I'm a competitive speaker. So I just saw out there that Hurricane Irene has sustained winds of 85 miles an hour. And I thought, huh, that's nothing. I could sustain a lecture with Michael at 85 miles an hour for about an hour and a half. That's nothing compared to what I could do because I really thought that I could talk him into recovery. I remember one time Michael and I got into an argument and I said, you know what, buddy, your problem is you're never at home. And he said, oh, I'm always at home. And then he said the words, and I'm going to tell you alcoholics something that you should never say to an Al-Anon like me. I said, you know what, you're never home. And he said to me, prove it. <laughs> Don't tell an Al-Anon of my type to prove it, because what I immediately did, and this was long before PowerPoint, I got a blank calendar and four different colored marking pens. And I would write in, in the little calendar cells, what time he called, what time he said he'd be home, the third time I called him or went to the bar, what time he said, and then the fourth time would accurately record what time he actually appeared in bed beside me. And I kept that data for a month. It was wonderful. The colors were fantastic. <laughs> I wish I had had Excel and PowerPoint. I could have done a pie chart and graphs. It would have been beautiful. But instead, I read somewhere to make an appointment. If you have an important conversation to have with your partner, make an appointment. So I did. So I made an appointment, and I said, sweetheart, I'd Remember a month ago when you said, you know, we had the argument, and I said, you're never at home, and you said, prove it, and he said, uh, you know, maybe I remember it. I said, well, I've been keeping track of what you've done for the past month. And so I pulled out my little calendar chart, knowing, knowing that he would look at that calendar and he would say, Pauline, love of my life, desire of my existence, you are right. The evil alcohol will never cross my lips again, based on that data. <laughs> Instead, he looked at my data and he said, whatever. <laughs> I wasn't exactly getting where I needed to be with him. So um, one night in the middle of February, we had our usual routine. He was out drinking. I was at home tying on an obsession. And... Um, I worked myself up into a good frenzy. It was February. I had hair down to my waist. Um, I got up about 2 o'clock in the morning, and he wasn't home, and I thought, you know what? I'm, I'm just going to go over and drive around the bar and see where he is. So being a good suffering Al-Anon, you know, being a good martyr-type Al-Anon, I had my old red robe that most of the velour had brushed off. I'd lost the belt. I had a piece of jute that I tied around to hold it up. <laughs> I put on my dark glasses so no one would recognize me, and my blue flip-flops, and I got in the car because I was just 
going to drive around the bar. That's all I was going to do. Well, I got over the bar and then thought I had a better idea and thought, you know what? Maybe I should just go in and get him tonight. So I got out of the car, and as it would be, the bar had doors, kind of like a Western saloon. So I walked up, raised myself up to all six one. You know, this height thing can really work. when You've got to use the tools that your higher power gives you, don't you? I made myself look real tall. Walk into the doors of the bar, open it up. Everybody in the bar stopped, turned around and looked because there's a new sheriff in town. <laughs> yep, long hair flowing, can't tell who she is, red velour robe, jute tied around it, and blue flip-flops. <laughs> really striking a powerful pose. Everybody notices, except one guy, Mike. <laughs> Sitting up at the bar nursing a beer and, an, and a cigarette. So I thought, well, I'll just go up and tell him what he needs to do. So I walk right up to him, and I look at him, and I say in my loudest, clearest voice, if you don't leave right now, I am going to create a scene. <laughs> and I have to tell you, for that one brief shining moment, it worked. He walked right behind me and came home. Of course, what did I do? Picked a fight, because that's what I needed to do at 2.30 in the morning when I had my obsession tied on. You know, Joe talked this morning about being lonely uh, as an alcoholic. I have to tell you my side of that as being an Al-Anon. I never felt so lonely as I did prior to the program. Being in a relationship with someone I couldn't connect with, no matter what I did, whether I gave him all the sex he wanted, whether I didn't give him sex, whether I spent money on him or didn't spend money on him, whether I went to the bars and drank with him, it didn't make a difference what I did. I still felt apart, aloof, not in a partnership. And that impacted me and the rest of the world. I felt different. Everybody else talked about their loving families and what was going on. I lied, said things were wonderful at home, things are just fine at home. But they weren't. But don't call him an alcoholic to my face. That's my job to tell him. If you told me you thought he had a drinking problem, I'd get right in your face and say, no, you're wrong. But behind the doors of our home, I was getting right in his face, using every adjective that you can imagine, and calling him that to his face. And I would have told you I was a loving, supportive wife. Not a very pretty picture. It was the best I could do, and it wasn't very good at all. And uh, Michael had a business that... Uh, got hit during the last recession. That business folded. We lost our home, the cars, the money. Poof, everything is gone. We end up in our little house that we're in now in Newport, Kentucky. And by this time, I'm praying uh, in my dealing with God. I really didn't have a, a God of my understanding. I made deals with God. I said, you know what? If you bring him home sober tonight, I or bring him home by 1 o'clock, because he never came home sober, 
But if you're bringing home by, by one o'clock, I'll only give him asylum treatment for two days instead of four. And I didn't have a God in my life because I felt that I was in charge and very self-reliant. And um, I was praying for his demise. We have a circle freeway in our little neighborhood, 275. And I was praying that he would have an accident on 275 and that not that he would hurt anybody else. I had it all planned out how his car would roll over. I went out and bought my little black dress. I had prepared how the tears would fall across my cheek at the funeral home. I figured out how I'd spend the life insurance money. (laughs) What I thought was my cure to this whole thing was getting rid of him. And I would have told you I was a loving and supportive wife. Wow. Huh? I didn't see it at all. I just thought that that's what I was supposed to do. Um, I think I had something happen in that time when we got to uh, our little house. We got there in September. And we were just, when we got there in September of 1992, I guess it was, we were just two months away from Michael getting sober. I didn't know that then. Well, I was doing my usual thing, watching the cars as they would go down the street, pop up, high drama when he'd get home. That was soup du jour at my house. And um, I remember one night I, I laid down in bed for the umpteenth time, and I remember something happened that sent a message from my head to my heart for the first time. I actually, what I used to say to myself and all those, you know, to him, I'd get in his face and I'd just yell and scream and cuss and be sarcastic. I'd say, you know, I don't have to put up with this crap from you. But on that night in 1992, something happened, and I believe it was a higher power working in my life. Because for the first time, I laid down in bed, and I heard Pauline, you don't have to put up with this stuff anymore. It was the first time I realized I had a choice in things. And so he came home. There was no 2.30 in the morning fight. He got to lay down and go to sleep. I waited till a couple of days later, and I sat down with him, and I said, Sweetheart, I love you. I don't know what is the problem, but there is something amiss with all this, and I don't know what the cure is. Something's got to be done, or I'm out of here. So... um, which is not what I wanted to do because I I loved him and it's hard to love somebody who's doing what he was doing for me to watch. So a couple weeks later I came home from work and by then he was unemployed and if he were standing here he would tell you he was unemployable. And uh, I came home from work and he said, do you have that number for that employee assistance program? Well, being a good Al-Anon, I was always prepared. So I casually whipped out the card And he went off to get his assessment to be an alcoholic. So he comes home from taking his test, and he announces to me that the doctor has deemed that he is an alcoholic. And he was holding up his paper like a kindergartner might hold up a drawing to put on the refrigerator, you know, like I'm supposed to say, congratulations, good job. What I'm thinking is, buddy, 
I've been telling you you're a blankety-blank alcoholic for 14 years. Why the heck didn't you hear it from me, buddy? <laughs> so go get your little problem fixed, buddy. Then we'll see what happens, buddy. Don't think I'm going along on this ride. Your problem, you fix it. Been there, done that. I'm not going again. So off he goes to rehab. And he comes home from rehab and tells me that the rehab facility says that I need to come to family program. Well, if you've ever seen a little bobble-headed doll, that's pretty much what I look like because I was like, no, it is your problem. I'm not going. No, 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 no. In any language that you can think of with lots of adjectives around it. And so off I go, who knows, off I go to the family, uh, uh, family planning. Heck, I mean family afterward. <laughs> family planning, duh. And... Um, I go in that meeting and I have happened to me what I think is a higher power working in my life. I did not want to like you at all. You were younger, you were older, you were black, you were white, you were gay, you were straight, you didn't look like me, and I put up before I walked in every barrier that I could imagine to not relate to you. Well, thank goodness that I have a higher power that works in my life. Because in that meeting, although everybody to my eye was different, the experiences that they shared, although the details were different, the feeling underneath it, the experiences, the craziness that they had in their life, I related to. And so that night on the way home in the car, I cried uncontrollably. And Michael said, sweetheart, why are you crying? And I think for me, in that car, in that meeting that night, I had what's equal to an AA's bottom. Because I realized in that moment, in that meeting, how crazy I had become. I was not the Pauline that I had been growing up. I had turned into the Wicked Witch of the West full time and was proud of it. That's how I liked to live my life. I didn't, I didn't have feelings. I shoved them all down. Didn't really make a difference to me whether you told me you won a million dollars or your mother died. I would have given you the same response. Oh, that's nice. I just kept everybody at a distance. Don't let you get too close because then you'll see the shame and guilt that I feel over what's going on in my own home. So the uh, hospital group tells me that I need to go to Al-Anon. Well, the bobble-headed doll appears again, and uh, off I go to Al-Anon. And I go to my first Al-Anon meeting and got a resentment right off the bat. <sighs> they were laughing. <laughs> I just did not understand how someone would laugh at what was going on in their home. But you know what? I so wanted to be able to laugh at what was going on in my own home. After that first Al-Anon meeting, I went to my first AA meeting. Um, I had to, of course, check out and see what he was doing, <laughs> make sure that he was doing it right, making sure that you were the appropriate crowd for him to hang around with, 
So I needed to check it out. So he takes me to the AA clubhouse, which is funny, it's called Promises. And when we moved to Newport after we'd lost the house, we drove by Promises, and it's in a, a, it, it's in a church that they've refurbished. And I remember getting very self-righteous. Self, Newport is known, has a repu- had a reputation, I guess, is the fair term. Joe could correct me. He's lived there longer than I have. But it, it was known for um, fast women and gambling and drugs and, you know, mobsters and stuff. So it had a bad rep. So we see this little refurbished church called Promises, and I got so self-righteous, and I just said, Oh, I can't believe that they've turned a church into a girly club named Promises. I bet those girls really promise a lot there. And that's where I went to my first AA meeting. And I walked up. Uh, I forget, I think it was the last chance chance meeting, and I walked up the steps and circled around at the top, and if there was one alcoholic in there, there must have been, I don't know, 200. It was a really large amount of people. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to have to fix and save all of these folks. (laughs) And being a good Al-Anon, I like to keep things organized. I started thinking, you know, how that could be done. So that was my first AA meeting. But you know what I saw in that first AA meeting that I needed so desperately? I can't tell you what the person's story was. Doesn't make a difference. I heard lots of laughter, and it was the first time I experienced somebody laughing about the foibles of being an alcoholic. I didn't know that that was possible. And so I got a good dose of laughter that night that I had never experienced before. And that little dose of laughter, actually it was a big dose, gave me just that little bit of hope that things just might work out one day at a time. Just one day at a time. So I started going to Al-Anon and um, got a sponsor. I still have the same sponsor that I had then in 1992. And I got a home group. I just recently changed home groups. But my home group, if you're in northern Kentucky on a Wednesday night, is at 7.30 at St. Elizabeth Hospital South, the New Beginnings group. We have a very active beginners group. And I also have three foster home groups. I go to Al-Anon meetings on Sunday night, Monday night, and Friday night as well. And I do Alateen sponsoring also. I'm a backup, and I train people on Alateen. I'm very involved in Al-Anon. Because what I decided when I got into the program, because of what I saw modeled by my sponsor, I got to make a choice. Did I want to belong to Al-Anon, just belong, or did I want to be a member? Which did I want to do? And I made a decision because of what I saw my sponsor model was to be a member of. And so I'm involved in, in the middle of Al-Anon doing what they have advised me to do for 18-plus years. That doesn't mean I do it perfectly. It doesn't mean that my life is filled with serenity all the time. It's not. But what I have learned, and I just read this in an Al-Anon book the other night, Al-Anon, the summation, it it felt so uh, pure and simple to me. It was talking about acceptance in a piece of Al-Anon literature, but it said, 
My higher power gives me the power to accept. Al-Anon gives me the path through the steps, traditions, and concepts. And the people in the rooms give me the support that I need. And I thought how simple it is. If I just remember that kind of stuff when life happens, it would be so much easier. The program, well, really not the program, my higher power has given me a whole bunch of uh, gifts as a result of being in these rooms. The very first gift that I got in the program of Al-Anon was the gift of choice. I didn't know that I could make choices. I made choices all the time, but I didn't make them in a way that was healthy. I remember one time Michael had a little boat that I bought him to get him to stop smoking cigarettes. I said, if you stop smoking cigarettes, I'll buy you a boat. He stopped smoking, I bought him a boat. We're up here at a marina, actually close to here, um, and he goes in, this was before we got into recovery, he goes into the marina to buy some beer. I'm sitting in the boat. There's some gentlemen up above on the dock, and they look down and they say, "Uh, ma'am, your boat's sinking, get out of the boat. (laughs) And I looked up and I said, I know, (laughs) sat in the boat. Michael comes over with his drinks, and he says, Pauline, get out of the boat. There's a hole in the boat. The boat's sinking. And I looked at him, and I went, I know, because here's what I thought in our relationship. Whether I get out of the boat or stay in the boat, I'm going to get yelled at either way. I might as well just sit here in a sinking boat because that's what I thought was best for me. I didn't know how to make good choices. And so I got to learn how to make choices. I just was reading an article the other day, and it said, describe your favorite meal. And I thought, you know, today I could do that. Before I got into the program, I would describe Michael's favorite meal, not mine. Because when you asked me how I was, I would say, oh, he's fine, thank you. I didn't know how to make even choices, healthy choices for me. And up to this point, I haven't really talked about a higher power other than to tell you that I wheeled and dealed, at least that was my idea, with a higher power. And that's how I lived my life, wheeling and dealing. I thought I was self-reliant. Thank you very much. I can do it on my own. I really don't need your help. I'll figure it out on my own. Thank you. Well, I'm typical in that I came, I came to, and I came to believe. Because what I did was listened to the experiences that people had in those rooms with their higher power and began to think that maybe, just maybe, there's a higher power out there for me. Because I didn't even think that a higher power would love somebody like me. You know, the fifth tradition talks about understanding and encouraging. Heck, I prided myself on maneuvering and being sarcastic. That's a big chasm for me to cross. And so I didn't know that my higher power, I didn't have faith that a higher power could take me from where I was to where I am today with more room to change tomorrow. So I gained a higher power through your sharing through the experience, strength, and hope that you shared and got that higher power. Got a sponsor and worked on the steps and went through those. 
And then, you know, that was about two or three years in the program. And um, he was gone a lot. He had gotten a job opening up and closing that little Promises clubhouse. So he, was, he wasn't at home. And I was beginning to get an attitude about that. And uh, I remember going to a meeting, an Al-Anon meeting one night, and uh, I decided to verbally vomit. You know, the, the chairperson said, does anybody have an Al-Anon topic that they'd like to bring up tonight? And I thought, it is about darn time because I'm getting an answer to this tonight. So I just verbally vomit. He's never home and wah, 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 wah. And she looked at me across the table and she said, Pauline, aren't you grateful that he's sober today? Wow. Hit me with a ton of brick. And from that point on, I've, I've tried to look at every day of his sobriety as Christmas because it is a gift. And I am so grateful that that gift is in the house and that in, in his life and that a higher power keeps working through his life, through the life of others that I meet in the meeting rooms to remember, to remind me that a higher power is there in my life if I'm willing to pay attention and look and see. Because sometimes I still get in my higher power's way. The next gift that I think I got was uh, learning how to let go. And I do not do this one well at all. Mm -mm -mm. Um, I had to let go of him. I had to let go of unhealthy relationships. In my family, in my biological family, I was the, the peacemaker that, or the, the fixer. They'd call me and they'd say, you know, so-and-so is mad at so-and-so. You need to call and get in the middle of and fix all this up and tell mom and tell dad, and I'd get in the middle and do all that. I had to back myself out of all of that, and those relationships all changed and have never been the same since. I'm healthier. They're just stuck where they are. But I had to learn how to let go. But I, it's a tough lesson for me to learn because I still like to tie on an obsession. Um, last year, we were on, Michael and I were on a trip. And um, we're going down a three-lane highway. And he's in the middle lane or the left lane, the high-speed lane. Well, I decide to quote him the rules about being in the high-speed lane. If you're going to drive the speed limit, don't get in the high-speed lane. Slower traffic, move right. That's what the sign says. So for months, and God bless his patience, for months, we'd get in the car, and he would do what he always does, drive in the middle or the left lane, and inevitably I'd say, when are you going to move over? Time to move over. I'm afraid you'd better move over. Months of this. And I'll never forget, right where we, we were, one night on 275, once again, he's over on, in the middle lane, and I said, sweetheart, we have had this conversation now for over a year. I have asked you not to drive in the middle lane. You need to get in the right lane. When are you going to get it? And he looked at me as sweet as he could, and he just smiled, and he said, Pauline, when are you going to get it? <laughs> you know, the message doesn't always come with hearts and flowers attached to it. 
But I was in a good spiritual spot that night, and I thought, you know what? I need to let that go. And I haven't said it since. Doesn't mean I don't think about it. <laughs> I'm just not that well. About uh, five years into the program, my work changed up and gave me, um, I had an, I, the way the work schedule worked out, I didn't get to go to my usual amount of Al-Anon meetings, and I was too lazy to go to the ones that I could go to. So I had two weeks of no meetings. And um, I'll just tell you what happens when I don't have meetings. We are at a Barnes Noble-type bookstore. And I'm in the Fang Shui section. Too cheap to buy the book, but I'll stand there and read it. So I'm paging through the book, and I notice a lady looking through a carton of calendars across the way. And she knocks over the carton of calendars, and she leaves the scene of the crime. I dog-ear that book. I close it up, and I walk over behind her. I raise myself up to 6-1 again, and I look at her, and I say, Ma'am, you knocked over a carton of calendars back there. If you'll come back here with me, I'll be happy to help you clean that up. So she comes right behind me. We get over to the calendars, and I stoop down and start putting calendars in the container, and she doesn't help me. So I stand back up again, look down on her, and I put a big smile on my face, and I say, ma'am, if everyone took responsibility for the mistakes that they made, the world would be a happier place to live. I still remember how to lay a pretty good guilt trip. She ducked down. She put the calendars in the container. She left. I go back to the feng shui section open the book right to where I was, and I'm looking in the book, and all of a sudden I go, holy God, Pauline, who died and made you the queen of Barnes & Noble or the queen of the calendars that you need to fix this up? So then I think, you know what I need to do? I need to make amends to the lady. So I race through the store. I'm trying to find the lady. Michael's like, what are you doing? And I'm saying, I'm trying to make amends. I'm trying to make amends. I can't find her. I said, sweetheart, let's go to Walmart so I can be the greeter and greet people so I can make it up. I'm still a pretty sick individual. <laughs> pretty sick. Um, I went through a period in the program where I got depressed. And I didn't know why. I just was sad all the time, and I couldn't figure it out. And I talked to my sponsor, and, and um, what we decided, what bubbled up to the surface, was that I had pushed my feelings down so far that they were starting to come up. And there were some things that I hadn't dealt with in life that I needed to deal with. Michael and I didn't have children. I wasn't able to. And I had never dealt with it. When I had a miscarriage or something would happen, I wouldn't tell people because I didn't want their pity. So I kept it very quiet and kept it in. And when my dad died, I didn't grieve it. I managed the funeral and directed it and told people where to show up and when to show up. 
So all those feelings came up. And I'm so grateful that a higher power gave me the opportunity to deal with those in a place that was safe, with a sponsor who knew how to guide me, with an opportunity to cry, because I was so afraid that if I cried, I would never stop. I was so afraid of my feelings. I was afraid if I let my anger out that I would do something that I'd either end up in jail or hurt somebody. I was so afraid of having feelings. And so I, uh, I worked through all those feelings and was grateful I, I did because a higher power had an opportunity for me to, uh, to be of help. One of my sponsees needed a birthing coach. And guess who she asked? Me. So I didn't get to have children, but I got to be there. My God's really good. So good. Moving forward in the program, let's see. Um, what time is it? Oh, my. Um, and you thought I was joking about that 85-mile-an-hour sustained win. <laughs> it wasn't a joke. In, uh, let's see, right before 9-11, so I guess that would have been 0102, somewhere in that period, Michael's mom and my mom were both in nursing facilities, both ill, both that we knew they weren't going to make it. And uh, I got a really good gift in that process of being able to, I got two really cool gifts in that experience with my mom and his mom. I finally learned to keep my head with my feet. For years, I would have conversations with people, and while you were talking with me, I was thinking about the next thing to say to maneuver the conversation. Or I was thinking about what I was going to do next week or the party that I was going, you know, to. I was never in the moment with you. And I learned in being able to sit with my mom and his mom as they passed to stay in the moment and keep this attached to my feet. All I had to do was look at my feet and go, Pauline, that's where you need to be. Your feet are here at the nursing home brushing your mother-in-law's hair. Then brush your mother-in-law's hair and be there in the moment with her. And I never thought I would be able to nurture not having children. And I learned through that experience that I have a nurturing side in me that I didn't know existed. And so I got to be there when his mom passed. And my husband that my mom didn't like when we dated, passed while he was there, just him. I have to tell you a neat story about how good my God is in that um, process. My mom died on Thanksgiving morning, and we had um, gotten called to the nursing home that she was going to pass around 1 o'clock in the morning, and she rallied a little bit. And so everyone went home. I stayed, you know, I did a shift. We were all trading off, and... Um, I did my shift. Mike picked me up, tucked me into bed, and he ran off to, to run errands. It was Thanksgiving. And um, the phone rang while he was gone, and I thought it was somebody calling from the nursing home. And I picked up the phone, and it was somebody from AA in Atlanta, Georgia. And he was calling me, asking me to do something, to do some Al-Anon service work that very weekend. 
And I said, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't do it. My mom's in the nursing home, and they think she's going to pass sometime this weekend, so I need to stay here. I said, we were, you know, up all night at the nursing home. And he just goes, hmm, that's interesting. I said, well, why do you say that? And he said, well, my wife and I were just at the nursing home with her mom last night for most of the night. Want to talk? With a man that I've never met, probably never will, who knows? But we had that language of the heart. And because I was able to stay in the moment, I got to see that beautiful gift that my higher power laid right before me. How often in my own focus on self, I've missed all the gifts that my higher power has laid before me. The bus driver that smiled and said hello. The person who gives me a hug or holds a door or lets me check in line. No, I'm teasing about that one. <laughs> but how often the gifts just float right on by and I don't even see them. And my higher power, I mean, it's a smorgasbord out there for me, a smorgasbord of gifts. What I have to do is pay attention to the gifts that are there. And what helps me pay attention to those gifts is doing what I've been taught to do in Al-Anon. Do my readings every day. Stay attached to my sponsor. And in my case, stay attached to my sponsees. Be of service to the program and to others. Reach a hand out. Drive people to meetings if they need it. Talk to an Alateen who I have no, you know, I've never had kids, but yet I often learn more about recovery from those children than I do from sitting in the rooms because my ears hear it differently. How often the gifts are right there. So what I think my higher power wants me to do is pick up each gift every day and enjoy it to the fullest. Whether I'm working, whether I'm spending time with Mike. You know, I was telling him, we just shopped for appliances this week. I used to hate going to like a Lowe's or someplace like that with him because we inevitably got in an argument. Inevitably, we got into a fight. And we talked about it on the way home Tuesday night, how much fun we had spending money on appliances. The salesperson was laughing. We were laughing. We got in the car. And one of the first things one of us said was, thank God, thank God that we got that salesperson to get us just what we needed. That's a far cry from what we used to be when we got married in 1980, I think. No, I think that's when we got married. <laughs> and it's only, it's only by the grace of the program of AA and Al-Anon that our relationship has moved to where it is today. Only by each of us working individually that we've gotten to that place. You know, I'm, I'm still an octopus inside. I still have my tentacles that come out and want to wrap my arms right around him and control him again, or you, or where you park your car. It doesn't make a difference. The octopus is still in me. The tentacles are still there. What the program does is give me an opportunity to maybe stroke you 
but not wrap my arm around you and hold you so tight that you can't move. And it's only by the grace of this program and doing the things that I'm a better person than I was when I walked in. And I think tomorrow my higher power has in store for me an even better Pauline than she is today. I can't thank you all enough for the gift of your attention and love that I felt this afternoon. Thanks so much.